Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Right. I think we should call her an unsilent guest, not a non-silent yeah. guest. What did I, I said non-silent? Yeah. An unsilent guest? So do you want to introduce to us and therefore to the throngs of 3DN fans, our, <laughs> uh, our unsilent guest? The hordes? <laughs> the hordes? Is that what a group of three North guest listeners would be? I think a it's a murder, of, a murder of fans. A murder of fans. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so with us today, oh, that was very radio-ish, is Carrie Jansen. Are you a doctor yet, Carrie? No, not quite. Dang Half it. of two different kinds of doctors. It's Can not we... a whole one, whole one. Okay, no. so that works. So we're going to call you Dr. <laughs> Carrie Jansen, because two halves make a whole. Uh, not quite, but... <laughs> well, you know... So, uh, last I checked my math, that's that's correct. So. No, without a doubt, we'll just. So I met Carrie down in Atlanta when I was um, a deacon over the summer at our cathedral at Christ the King, and I think at the time you had just finished up running our twenty and thirty somethings young adult group at the at the cathedral, and was passing over the torch to somebody else, but. We coordinated together on maybe a couple of talks, but they were just v- really involved at the parish and kind of took me in. Um, her and her husband, Patrick, are just wonderful. And uh, I mean, Carrie's a great cook. That's really what the friendship was based on initially. And so I would go over and uh, scarf at their house and join y'all's Bible studies a couple of times, but she was just really wonderful to me and um, allowed me to enter into the parish. Uh, through some of those friendships. And then after I left, we stayed in touch and um, they were really generous with a couple of things in the future and um, a couple of the mission trips really close with and continued to have me over for dinner. And they actually visited me last year up at Mundelein, which was a super treat as well. Um, yeah. So just grown pretty good friends with the Jansons and uh, was talking with Carrie yesterday doing some FaceTiming and um, she started speaking about some of the coronavirus and everything that's going on right now. And I thought, well, gum, we may actually have a, an expert on our hands um, with everything that's going on. So I thought it would be good to have her on and just, just chat for a little bit. Um, so Carrie, will you, um, I don't know, maybe just Tell us a little bit about what you've been studying and um well, can the I path. ask a question first? Oh yeah. Just when is this gonna be over? <laughs> if I had the answer to that question, I think I might be everyone's favorite person. <laughs> you would be. Uh, then why why did we have her on again? <laughs> what, what are we talking about today then? <laughs> <laughs> Fix it. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Carrie, okay, can you um this is my only hesitation of having Carrie on is that uh, she may be too qualified. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like... Okay, that's here's the other thing before we really get into this. I had a question as well. Is Carrie, um, yeah, Metz was telling me a little bit about your background and the work you're doing. And this isn't negative towards any of our fans because this is like a continual thing I'm blowing away with, blown away with, but... You you sound like really accomplished and really smart, but also a fan of the podcast, which <laughs> like I'm just trying to like reconcile the two things. And again, like that's consistently what I experience is like you meet someone that likes the podcast and you're like, wow, you're like normal and intelligent and just, yeah, like a good kind of high functioning human being. <laughs> um, anyway, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there of, yeah, super super cool surprising but but very cool <laughs> aka we're trying to figure out why people listen, listen to, to the us. podcast but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but because i i know you're not gonna um it will be tough for you to talk about your own accomplishments is it okay if i just force you to do that right now yeah that's fine <laughs> is that okay so like what are you doing what are you studying um what's the program that you're in yeah. um yeah 
Um, so I am in the MD PhD program at Emory in Atlanta. So that means that I do medical school and graduate school. Um, sometimes I tell people that and they say, wow, you must be really smart. And then I say, no, I think I'm just crazy. Um, so that, so I basically did half of medical school before I switched over into doing more of my PhD work. And then when I finish my PhD, I'll go back and finish the second half of medical school before I go on to do the rest of my sort of postgraduate medical training residency and fellowship. And in my PhD, I study, um, cancer immunology. So how our body's immune system fights cancer and how we can sort of use that to design medications to help people that have cancer. Um, so I'm about halfway or a little more than halfway through my PhD. Um, this is my fifth year in the program of eight or maybe nine, depending on how long this uh, pandemic drags on. Um, but yeah, so I don't think I'm particularly qualified to be an expert on coronavirus, but as I was sort of telling Father Mike yesterday, um, I think I feel a sort of like personal um, obligation to be a communicator of science and medicine to the rest of the world and try to sort of translate things that we know to try to help people be informed with as real of news as possible with all the fake news out there. Um, And so it's kind of an interesting time to feel like you're not an expert, but still feel like you have an obligation um, to contribute what you can. So what would the MD-PhD program like? What's the purpose of that? Um, And like, what does that look like? How would you use that in the future? Yeah, so the idea is to train people to be researchers and um, sort of, quote, regular doctors. So um, ideally, one day in very many years when I finally finish all of my training, um, I will be able to see patients, hopefully um, cancer patients, and also have a research lab that um, studies things on in a more basic way to try to inform the care that we do in the clinic. So um these programs are supported by um, a program at the National Institutes of Health, um, and they're sort of designed to create what they call medical scientists and that are trained to sort of live at the boundary between science and medicine so that um, we can better facilitate um, translating findings from the lab into the clinic and also better inform the questions we ask in the research labs with um, sort of the most foremost problems that we see in the clinic. Dang, that's like the smartest sentence I've I've heard on this podcast. <laughs> right there, that just happened. And if I remember correctly, you've actually been to was it St. Charles Borromeo on one of the Catholic medical conferences? Is that yeah, right? That's right. Um, the Catholic Medical Association has this really cool sort of retreat training thing. They call it boot camp, or at least they used to, for medical students and residents. Um, That's like five days of relatively intense, but also really fun instruction in Catholic medical ethics. Um, So I did that after my first year of medical school, which was also about mm, two or three months after I joined the church. Um, And that was really neat. We got to learn from some of the sort of like best and brightest Catholic um, medical ethics minds um, and also just be really immersed in a Catholic medical culture, which for most of us is very separate from what it feels like in our um, med school cultures on a day-to-day level. Hmm. And and this will be my last, um, I guess my last like interview question. Um You are also, and I hope this is public news, or at least you're okay with talking about it, but you're going to have some of your research published um, in a little bit, right? Or is it already published? It's out. It came out in December. Wow. And can you say a little bit about that? Just where it's being published? And (laughs) I need to call Patrick in here to um, be the one that brags on me so I don't have to do it myself. (laughs) Um, So my paper from the first like half of my graduate work was published at the end of last year um, in a journal called Nature, um, which for any of the sort of scientists out there um, might already know that is um, one of the biggest biomedical sciences journals in the world. Um, And so that was a pretty long and intense process to get it there, but um, also very humbling and very exciting to um, see your work in in ink in the journal. Um, 
and to see, like, you can see metrics online of like how many people have read it and stuff, um, which is just really mind blowing. <laughs> That's awesome. Congrats that on that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Congrats. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming. I'm very, in, I'm very enlightened on uh, whatever's <laughs> going on. So thank you. Well, Carrie, I, uh, I studied biochemistry in my undergrad with a lot of pre-med people and did a little bit of undergraduate research help and, um, uh, obviously nowhere near your level of, but I was around people like you and people publishing and things like nature and stuff. And actually somebody here at UIC who's an engineer was like looking on PubMed or whatever that database of, of old articles. And there's a couple that like I, there was a, an experiment I did on somebody's paper, some postdoc, uh, his paper. And so I'm like one of the 14th authors or whatever on a couple papers. Um, and just the, the way that what kind of, uh, didn't turn me off to science and research, but made the prospect of priesthood as it was growing in my heart as a, as a thing that I really desired where biochemistry lost to me was like sitting around at these lab meetings and people going over their research and going over the literature and just having a grasp on so many different things of what was going on at the very cutting edge. And I was barely able to make basic experiments work to get the right graph that (laughs) could go into a paper and just understanding like the one little project that I was working on, which was part of a bigger project, which was part of a whole lab labs uh, initiatives and a a whole culture of biochemistry of what was going on at the time. Um, this is not to, you know, gild a lily and, and boost your ego anymore, but it's just, it's very, um, impressive what it takes to like, to do this. And it's given me just like a little bit of a cursory knowledge of things like viruses and, uh, DNA and biochemical processes and how things work and the immune system and just basic biochem that I would gotten in undergrad, uh, I feel like you get a sense of like when a new virus comes around that nobody's immune to, I have some sense of what that means, but like this is a moment where all of a sudden biochemistry is like everybody has an opinion on something that's a very esoteric subject, you know, or everyone's like trying to figure out what does this mean? Cause now it's affecting absolutely everything about daily life. And what is, what is a virus? How does it work? What are vaccines? How do they work? Uh, how long does it take to make a vaccine? You know, I understand people get Nobel prizes for discovering vaccines or are we just like, okay, when is this going to happen? It's not going to be on a schedule, you know? So I guess what I was curious when uh, Father Mike mentioned having you on the podcast was like, what, what is your take on all of that? Like the, you, you sent, you had a, a responsibility or felt a responsibility to kind of communicate at a layman's level like some of them, this more esoteric stuff, what are you seeing as the the things that are the true news that you can trust and what's, what's really going on? Yeah, I think, I think the thing that I'm sort of grappling with is almost being able to find that myself, which is why I think it's so hard, like in the whole world to figure out what really is going on, because we're at such a place with all this in like both on the scientific side and the medical side of trying to figure out sort of what end is up and how to best proceed and trying to balance like quality of um, research and reporting with the really pressing need for doing it all really fast, um, which is generally kind of antithetical in, in our, in our world of science and medicine. Usually things take a long time, but we do them really well. Um And so it's kind of an interesting time because it takes a lot of time and energy to try to digest what's out there and figure out um, what we think is true because there's lots of conflicting reports and things are different in different contexts, whether you're talking about data coming out of China or South Korea or different countries in Europe, there's things that are sort of, that are true about all the things that have happened there, but when we apply them here, it could be different because there's a different context. So it's kind of hard to even sort out what is the the truest news, I guess. Um, and I think 
that is coming at a hard time with a lot of, with sort of our cultural context anyways, with um, there being sort of a lot of background, um, almost like anti-science sentiment in our culture, um, like opposing sort of the medical establishment, opposing um, vaccines and all that sort of thing, um, that it's hard to, I think a lot of doctors and scientists feel the need to be honest that there is a lot of uncertainty about um, everything going on with the coronavirus, but also to try to maintain what public trust there is in in our professions um, is a really sort of difficult balance. And that's sort of what I was telling Father Mike yesterday is that um, sometimes it feels hard to not take the sort of anti-science or anti-medicine sentiment personally because you do feel that obligation to share um to share your knowledge and try to um, help other people understand. And I think of my life in science and medicine as sort of like a small V vocation. That's obviously secondary to my vocation as a wife and a mother, but um, I do feel like it's something that I've given my life to and that I've been called to. And so when I try to share that with other people and, um, and you're met with um, sometimes a lot of hostility um, or just sort of a lot of skepticism um, or, you know, choices by people to try to sort of believe other sources that you know aren't particularly valuable ones. It's hard to sort of sort through that and continue um, to try to keep the goal in mind. I don't know. I think I'm just rambling now, but... No, well, that resonates a lot with us as as authority figures that are, you know, in a culture of skepticism towards that, like even within the church and certainly without... Outside the church, there's a lot of skepticism towards priests and um, established religion. But even within the church, you know, like some of the criticism of the bishops and priests, that's hard not to take personally. That like, why are you depriving us of the sacraments? Like that word, it just feels like it's meant to be like you, you're choosing this, uh, you know, and it's like not a situation that anybody wants. And it's not, it's not a thing where, where we're trying to deprive anyone of anything, but, um, trying to help and, and follow the, you know, recommendations and suggestions and laws that we're subject to, um, you know, and making those judgment calls. Uh, I don't know when there's a lot of mistrust and just skepticism in general, and there's a whole, there's a whole movement of people that believe the earth is flat. Um, you're like, what, what can you trust? What information can you trust? And I think that information is kind of secondary to the, the personal trust. Do you trust the source of this information, this person that's talking to you? And, um, I think that's what I feel like is at, beneath the surface of a lot of that sort of stuff is like, we just don't trust you have our best interests in mind or you, we don't trust that you love us, you know? And so you're lying or I can't trust what you say. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I get get a lot of like chain emails and stuff from people who are like, "This is all the vaccine. This is the pharma pharma companies trying to make money on vaccines." And um, and just, around like, this, around yeah, like people have sent me videos of like, you know, and people with all these plausibility structures. Like, this is a doctor. Look at his white coat, and he's saying this, and um, <laughs> it's it's crazy. So it's it's uh, a lot of noise out there, and. I'm not sure <laughs> Three Dogs North is not contributing to the noise somewhat, but um, we do try to talk to people we trust and uh, love. So, yeah, and I think I don't know. I've been talking a lot with some of my fr- like Catholic friends about particularly what life in this time means for us as Catholics, and I think. I don't know, in some ways, maybe my perspective is a little bit informed by being a convert because I think I was so um, sort of relieved to be able to like just fall into the truth of the church when I joined the church and not have to um, sort of be independently responsible for figuring out what the truth was um, when I joined the church that obedience when it's appropriate, you know, not, not when authorities are asking you to do something that isn't reasonable or is it counter to our consciences or whatever it may be. But obedience to authority is, I think, easier for me since I've joined the church. And so, um, 
I've just been talking to my friends about how, you know, adhering to the guidelines, staying at home, social distancing, all these things I really believe is, is required of us if we really are as pro-life as we say that we should be. Um, and there's actually like an article that got written early on in this, um, social distancing time, um, called playing it safe is pro-life. Um, and I think, I think that's a really important message that I wish was people were talking about more because I worry that sometimes we're losing our pro-lifeness and only talking about beginning of life issues. But really I feel strongly that, you know, we have to stay home and do social distancing and be careful and serve others um, to protect everyone around us, particularly those most vulnerable, which right now doesn't um, looks different than maybe what the pro-life movement looks like at other times. Yeah. Well, what do you say to the people who say, well, you know, well, abortion kills millions. This is only killed a few thousand and the flu kills way more. And what are, what's, what's your take on, on that kind of stuff? I think it's kind of like apples and oranges because obviously every death is a tragedy, but right now there's something unique about the way that this is killing in that it's spreading through the population so quickly. Um, you know, just with the flu example being a little less apples to oranges than the other examples, like those flu deaths are over an entire flu season of like six months or more. Um, whereas these deaths are all concentrated in, you know, a few weeks or maybe a few months. We'll, like we'll see how long it's dragging on. And so it's a particular, I think it's a particularly sort of different, um, beast than we're used to. Um, and, from a sort of medical perspective, it is pretty different from the flu because the risk to any one individual um, with the flu is likely much smaller, um, at least at this point before we have any sort of vaccine um, or any appreciable um, population immunity to this coronavirus um, because the risk, especially for those vulnerable people, is much higher than the flu and we don't really have any way to protect them without a vaccine um, other than staying apart and staying at home. Um, and like, I've seen lots of those things going around the internet that's like, well, like, you know, so many people, like X people died in this state today from coronavirus, but, you know, three times that die, usually die in car wrecks or whatever it is. Um, and I just don't feel like that's a very useful comparison because as one of my friends put it, car wrecks aren't contagious, <laughs> hmm. um, in a, in a way that's sort of different than car wrecks or, even abortion or gun violence or whatever it is, um, this, like the infectivity of the virus, I think requires additional things from each of us as a part of society. Um, because sure, we all drive cars, but um, when we interact with our loved ones or, you know, people at the store in our offices, we're not, you know, sending them into a car wreck. Um, we're, whereas if we don't practice social distancing and we are an asymptomatic carrier of the virus, we could be sort of forcing them into that. Hmm. Can can you maybe explain a little bit about what makes the coronavirus so unique? And I remember just talking yesterday, like you and Pat were, were talking about with the normal um, annual flu virus, there's some residual immunity that exists in the population and in each of us, but this coronavirus is is very, very unique. And so there is absolutely no residual immunity because it's so different and so it's it's sweeping power is just much much stronger can can you maybe just like explain why this is so different than uh yeah, than so just the regular like flu the flu that we have every year um the strains of it change year to year but sort of i guess you could call it like the base of the virus is kind of the same um and so each of us individually enjoys some level of immunity to the flu generally um, year to year, but we can be more or less susceptible to the flu year to year, depending on how the virus has mutated between seasons. Um, and so if it mutates a lot, you may not have as much immunity that year. The other thing that gives, gives us a lot of help with the flu is that we do have the flu vaccine. So even if not everyone gets vaccinated, um, then there's enough people in the population that have some immunity to the flu 
um, that it decreases the speed that the virus can spread through the population. It decreases the severity of the symptoms of patients that do get the flu if you've been vaccinated. And a lot of times with viral infections, the amount of virus that you shed or like give off um, that could be infectious to other people when you're infected um, can be correlated to the severity of your symptoms. So for example, if you had the flu and you were super, super sick, um, you might be giving off like a lot, a really high amount of virus and you might be more infectious then. So then if more people are vaccinated, their symptoms are less severe, they have less um, what they call viral load or like amount of virus in their body that they're then going to give off, then that means that there's a lower risk for anyone that comes into contact with them of getting infected. Um, but since we don't have um, a vaccine for the coronavirus, there um, isn't any level of that in the population. So there's nobody out there yet other than, you know, the few recovered patients that have um, any appreciable immunity. So there's not a lot of sort of, if you think of the people in the population that have immunity as almost speed bumps to the virus, there's not really any of that in the population right now. And this coronavirus is so different from um, the coronaviruses that cause like the common cold um, that there isn't any other outside of vaccine sort of residual immunity in the population either because this coronavirus came um, it's what they call a they call a zoonotic virus, which means it came from another animal into humans. Um, and so, as with most sort of emerging viruses, we think with reasonable certainty that the virus originated in bats, and that the way that it got into humans, um, which is sort of interesting for this case for the coronavirus, is it through pangolins, which are um, heavily trafficked animals, sort of like on the black market, if you will. Um, and so the pangolin was the animal that allowed it to get from bats into humans. Um, and that the coronaviruses in bats are pretty different from the ones that circulate in the human population normally um, that cause just like a common cold, mild symptoms. Um, and so since it is so different, um, we don't really have any immunity, immunity to it. Um, whereas with the flu, um, even though it changes year to year, the sort of like total magnitude that it changes is much smaller than the difference between common cold type coronaviruses and this novel one. I just Googled pangolin and boy, what a hideous creature. <laughs> kind of like, people describe them as like a, a cross between like an anteater and an armadillo or something. I was going like to say that exact thing. I promise. That's what it looks like. <laughs> an anteater? Well, I want to It's kind of got more like a fish scale look than an armadillo scale, but it's it looks like an armored, it looks an armored anteater, a pangolin. Disgusting. <laughs> so this is a trafficked animal that was the cause of the bat human. That's what our best um, guess is right now. The um, the they sequenced coronavirus from pangolins that is like ninety six percent similar to the novel coronavirus circulating in humans right now. Um, which is very similar considering that the coronavirus um, is an RNA virus, which means that it its um, genetic material mutates really, really fast. So 96% similar is very similar. Um, and so it's reasonably certain that that's how it ended up in humans. Hmm. Dude, he's pretty cool looking. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> There's some that are like dry and some that are kind of slimy looking. The slimy looking ones are kind of upsetting. <laughs> man i'm realizing i know nothing about science <laughs> is it a silver lining uh carrie that at least the coronavirus is also wiping out these creatures <laughs> i don't know i don't really know anything about pangolins or their sort of like general contribution to the ecosystem okay fair enough okay carrie here's my question who do you have anybody to recommend i'm just asking for myself um of hey this this is like a really good source to to go to and to read to get kind of the most up to date stuff that's accurate and clear. Um, and maybe I'll ask it both from your your science background, but then also just being a faithful Catholic as as well. And no doubt you'll say Three Dogs North is kind of the cutting edge of that end of things. But <laughs> besides us, like. Yeah, I'm. I'm just kind of curious. Not a right answer there, but like, has anyone um, 
kind of speaking with some some clarity in your mind? Um, to be honest, this is going to be really sort of atrociously millennial. My favorite news, news source about this is one of my professors from Emory, um, who's an infectious disease doctor. Um, his name is Carlos Del Rio. And, um, and I honestly get most of my news about it from his Twitter. Um, because I know, I, I know that I can trust him. He's been on the news at, of, with reasonable frequency lately, especially with CNN being in Atlanta. Um, and he is a reliable source for me of sharing sort of the latest research and news and perspectives about what's going on. Um, and that has been sort of the easiest for me. Um, looking at like case counts and stuff on the like world of meters page and all of that, I think is reasonable. Also, I don't look at the numbers too much because it, then it sort of starts stressing me out. Um, <laughs> and I'd rather sort of spend my time thinking about it, thinking about um, the sort of practical medical and scientific aspects of it. But that's my favorite sort of science news source. I wish I had um, what I felt like was a good um, sort of source for things on the faith side of things, because I, and I, I sort of feel like that's pretty lacking right now. I feel like I've been kind of disappointed because some of the people that I had looked to in the past um, for leadership in this matter, I feel like are um, sort of letting me and honestly, a little bit sort of broader Catholics down at this point, um, which is, I think has been kind of sad. And, um, like I said, disappointing. Um, so I think really in that way, it's just been my like community, um, of faith locally, uh, my friends that has been the source there. Um, cause I haven't seen a whole lot, you know, on the internet or otherwise that has spoken to me a whole lot about, um, how we should live like this as Catholics. Um, I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of um, sort of what Father Connor was alluding to about people sort of upset that they're being deprived of the sacraments or whatever it may be. Um, and not as much people speaking about um, what our moral obligations might be um, in contributing to the common good as Catholics right now. And I wish there were more voices out there um, to that effect. How about just as a as a person out there in the world continuing to have to work, I assume, um, even as you're studying, like the spiritual effect of, say, like live streaming Easter Mass. I don't know what you did for, for that kind of stuff, but like any reflections from us? I'm, I'm podcasting my daily Masses and my homilies and did video reflections and stuff for the Triduum, and it, you feel kind of a little helpless as a priest not having face-to-face stuff with people but have you found any of that stuff helpful um i think i've been really thankful for those um for those sorts of resources obviously it's not the same as being able to go to mass in person um but i mean within it felt like minutes of lots of dioceses um suspending public masses there was like a website that got sent around that listed like every live stream mass that anyone could find basically anywhere in the world. It feels like there's like 10 options. You could live stream mass at any hour on a, on a Sunday. Um, and I think that's pretty incredible. And I think maybe a silver lining of all of this is I hope that, um, parishes and Catholic communities will sort of keep some of the things that we've learned in this time. Cause I was telling someone, earlier this week and they're asking about what we did for Eastern. We live streamed mass from, um, from the cathedral here in Atlanta. Um, but I was saying, you know, the cathedral has live streamed mass. They live stream Sunday mass every Sunday normally. Um, and I was really thankful for that. Um, in the weeks right after our daughter was born, um, that we could, you know, virtually attend mass when we couldn't physically go. Um, and I think, I, and then it made, that made me realize, you know, there are people that are homebound or shut in that may not have that access all the time, not just because of a global pandemic. Um, and so I hope that maybe we'll learn some things from the pandemic to keep doing those sort of things. Um, um, maybe it's made us more cognizant of people's needs in the world that we sort of might have forgotten otherwise. Um, and I, I certainly had never thought of how useful that live stream mass would be before I needed it myself. Um, so I think that's been, that's been really good. Um, some of the live streams, I think 
I did. One of my friends said it, and then I realized I felt felt the same way. Like when they're when they're a little, it feels almost bad to say this, but it, when they're a little less like Facebook livey and a little more professionally done, sometimes it's nice to happen upon one of those because um, maybe it feels a little more like you're there. Um, hmm. But I also have really enjoyed some of the more crude setups, just because it feels like a really personal and sincere way that the priest is trying to bring us the sacraments, even when we can't be there in person. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's been encouraging the, that people are really trying to do whatever they can. Um, yeah. And I guess it, maybe to add on to that at the parish level, it seems like a lot of the folks, um, that I get emails from and texts and calls from just expressing their gratitude is they really want to stay connected to the parish. And it's different than just watching like, you know, EWTN, they they stream masses like nobody's business, you know, and there's all these other options. But I, I guess I didn't realize how uh, symbolic the church is and, and how symbolic their priest. their priest is. Yeah. And to be honest, I felt really like privileged and humbled in that when people see me on their Facebook computer TV, um, they feel like they're seeing the parish in some way. And so I, I, I don't think I've ever really felt um, as much of a, of a unifier and a symbol of the whole church um, as I have during this experience. Um, I think something I realized... Um, after we talked to you, Father Mike, yesterday, um, was that I hadn't really thought about how hard this might be for priests also. And like to hear you sort of say that it's difficult to figure out sort of how to best love your parish right now, that that was like, you know, particularly humanizing, I think, to realize that like we're not, even though it's easy to feel like, oh, well, the priests are still getting to, you know, receive the Eucharist, they're getting to say mass and all of that, um, to sort of remind ourselves that there are other challenging aspects. I think just to hear, it was good for me to hear you say that, um, to make me think about the ways that um, the church having to be a part right now affects even the people that are still, you know, closest to the sacraments was hmm. really good for me to hear. Yeah, it really didn't. I mentioned this in my Easter vigil homily, uh, my private Easter vigil. And, uh, it was, it hit me Saturday morning, like the, the sadness of going through the triduum without people. Um, and I saw, I just saw a glimpse of Bishop Barron's very professionally done Good Friday liturgy and him going into an empty church and church and prostrating himself before the altar in like total silence. You can hear the noise of the, of the church kind of reverberating and it got me all weepy. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, there's another one where we have this personal connection to him as our rector at Mundelein. And he's just such a iconic figure of the American church. And they're in this empty church. He's, he's uh, also that, that symbolic action of prostrating before the, the cross. You think of like, here's this, larger than life person who um he too as a priest lays before jesus as a sinner and says we're not worthy but you died for us you know um yeah it's not like we're hoarding the sacraments to ourselves or like that that's in any way like oh you know good now i can i don't have to you know have people in the church i can just have mass to myself it makes it just doesn't that's a sadness as a priest. Um, yeah, I think, and I think maybe as if I could even possibly endeavor to speak <laughs> on behalf of lots of lay Catholics out there, hearing our priests say that I think is really important. Um, and like to, to know um, how much like the priests miss the people in the church and that sort of thing. Um, I think at least is really powerful. Um and on the note of Bishop Barron, I did see earlier today that Word on Fire put out um, an interview with um, a, a Catholic physician about coronavirus, and I listened. To uh, it they a probably bit. heard that we were going to do something similar, and they copied us. <laughs> they do that all the time. <laughs> they, 
Yeah. Um, I listened to a little bit and I thought it was really good. They talked about sort of the basics of like the science and medicine and also about um, a Catholic perspective. I might, I might link to that. but <laughs> Classic, <laughs> dude. Three Dogs North were on fire just neck and neck. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting <laughs> edge. Poaching. Well, there must be a leak. Between the three of us. <laughs> oh man, who is somebody's it? hacked my email. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that's part of the frustration as well, uh, where the sadness that the church feels and its emptiness right now and its its material, like physical, corporal in- emptiness. Um, that's also why it's so frustrating and hurtful when it's m- misinterpreted and construed so much where it's like oh look this is just a weakness and the and the church is just bowing to all these other powers and listening to um like i heard people say very early on like this is from the devil like people are getting controlled by fear and and the devil and and i'm sure there was some of that as well um but to see something like proper health standards um enforced in the church and to have it interpreted as well we're just afraid and i don't know hoarding the sacraments to ourselves or whatever it's like so not the case you know that it uh it's something that's actually it is it's really tough and i do i'm I'm sure i speak for y'all too as well like i miss seeing my people very much it's been hard to not go over to their homes and hang out and yeah, it's, it's tough, tough staring at computer screens all day, talking on the phone. It is. Yeah, those are just minor inconveniences. I but think- what do we, what would you say, Carrie, to the objection? Like, someone were to say, "Well, if there's no vaccine, this is going to have to run its course. You know, you have to make hard decisions, and a lot of people are are probably going to die of this because it's it's uh, lethal in some, especially vulnerable populations, and some." I mean, what's scary too is that, like, there's a lot of young people with no pre-existing conditions, and they and they fall really ill, and maybe it's because they have a bigger viral load or whatever. They're exposed to more of it, but we don't really know. Um, but like, to the people that are saying like these medical experts can't be the only ones we listen to. What about all these other knock-on effects that this kind of shutdown has on people, and poverty, and economics, and suicides, and stuff like that? And um, like, at what point? do we like is this is the course inevitable anyway and we're just kind of delaying the inevitable by distancing for this long time and um aren't we eventually going to have to get herd immunity and that's going to cost people getting sick and recovering and yeah I what do you say to that i don't i don't think there is a great answer i think we had a little bit of like a mini experiment into that with um some of the european countries sort of trying to take that approach where they were like we're just going to let it run through the population and you know tell everyone that's old or sick or whatever it is to stay home let all the young people get immunity so then we can all come back out and sweden being the most notable example of that and uh they started backpedaling on that relatively um quickly um it didn't it didn't go so well um i think for a number of reasons and last i looked um their um they were having a lot of the same troubles that we've had in, in some of our American cities where this got out of hand before we could really um, manage it. And with lots of pretty high death counts and, um, and you know, hospitals being overwhelmed and doctors and nurses not having um, the right protective equipment and that sort of thing. Um, so I think, I mean, I think whatever normal life looks like after this will be pretty different than what we were used to normal life looking like, at least for a good long while. Um, somebody asked the um, doctor that I was referring to earlier, this, basically this question um, last week on a Facebook live, he was doing like, you know, how did, how does this end? What does this look like? And he sort of said, you know, he thinks that things will start to slowly reopen um, eventually and that it'll just change some of the ways that we go about normal life. Um, maybe some more social distancing practices in our everyday lives as we start to try to reopen, um, you know, with the CDC acknowledged, um, recommendation 
of trying to wear masks in public to try to keep people from spreading the virus as much. Um, You know, he said, personally, I'm not thinking about going into any very crowded places for a pretty long time, (laughs) which I agree with. Um, So I think the name of the game right now is really trying to slow the rate um, at which people are getting infected um, to try to give people um, the best chance to get the best medical care that they need um, and to not overwhelm the system. I don't know um, what it will look like for us to get enough immunity for us to all be around together again and that sort of thing. But I think this is something that my friends and I have been talking about, about how do we balance the human cost of, you know, the literal physical suffering and death right now from the virus versus um, that that's coming down the road from the economic impacts. Um, I don't know, at least personally, and I I think I'm a little bit biased in this because medicine is something that I do feel so called to that I feel like we have to sort of take a first things first approach. Um, That The problem that's pressing right now is the people dying in the hospitals or even in their homes. Um, but that probably we have a responsibility knowing that this economic impact is going to come down the road to do what we can um, from whatever places of privilege that we have um, to try to lessen that impact as much as possible. Um, whether that's like trying to support local businesses as much as we can right now, or, you know, making sure that we still give to the church or like to the Knights or St. Vincent de Paul or whatever it is um, that help people when they have needs um, down the road. I think that is sort of my answer is, you know, this, we can't do anything about the fact that the virus is here right now, other than heed recommendations and, and try to mitigate it as much as possible. Um, and we didn't see it coming, so we couldn't really prepare for it that much, but we can prepare for what we see coming, you know, months from now, um, as far as, you know, economic or mental health or whatever it is impacts of this. And so, um, we sort of have to deal with that that's facing us right now, but also prepare for what's coming down the road um, and not be surprised by it um, when it comes. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, I'm a little worried about this slow reopen and us not. The other thing that made me cry looking at social media the other day besides Bishop Barron on Good Friday was... Uh, an ESPN ad about how sports bring us together and how much we miss them. And it was this chant of the student section at a basketball game going, I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. And I just had this caught in my head as I went walking around on Holy Saturday. It was making me weepy again because it's just like the hope of the resurrection. It was, you know, Holy Saturday. And just like when you're haunted by the specter of death and the world as it's longing to be totally redeemed and restored um yeah you know those kind of like little images and reflections of what it's going to be like when we're all i'm just looking back at old pictures of like newman events that we had three months ago and all these kids sitting in this room together and i'm like now all of a sudden it's like when you watch movies from the 90s about people running up to the the gate at an airport to tell a person they love them you're like oh that wouldn't happen now after 9 11 you're just like Mm -hmm. the whole world you look th- you look through a different lens that you didn't look through before. You're like, man, I wish it was back then <laughs> before we were worried about this, you know? It's a little bit sort of um, maybe dark or morbid, but I think one of the things that I have found some hope in is like all the pictures of like Saint, of Father of um, Pope Francis blessing an empty St. Peter's Square um, or even like live streaming mass and seeing the cathedral empty and that sort of thing feels really at first, I think it feels really sad and kind of depressing that it is empty. Um, but I try to remind myself that right now that's really what loving other people looks like and caring for our neighbor is like those empty churches mean, um, that we're taking care of each other the best way that we can right now in a way. And so the fact that, you know, Pope Francis is walking through the streets praying a rosary and the streets of Rome are empty and his Swiss guards are, you know, 10 feet from him or whatever it is, or the pictures of him in the, in the window, um, you know, blessing an empty square and that sort of thing can seem really sad. But I think to me, they're hopeful that um, whether sort of imposed by governments or, you know, by the bishops or voluntary, the fact that those places are empty 
is a way that we can love each other right now. Yeah. It doesn't feel like an act of charity in the moment, but it does. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's certainly an eye opening moment that I had around just the current state of things was on Easter Sunday. I, uh, asked my pastor if it was okay if I had permission to go home and celebrate Easter Sunday Mass, which I was on to live stream at 10, and I was going to do it here at the parish on my own, and I asked for permission to go home and live stream it from my basement, which was awesome, <laughs> with my whole family down there and, like, Great Dane barking in the background and... um the babies screaming and crying all over and it just felt much more eastery and um and people were really really grateful to to kind of yeah to have a family to celebrate easter with and um so celebrated mass for them but then right when our big feast was about to start um for our easter celebration i got a call and needed to go and visit a patient uh in the hospital and so i actually had to leave and um, I mean, that was tough, but then going into the hospital and seeing what the nurses were doing on Easter Sunday and what these doctors were doing and having to get totally gowned up and really being confronted with the danger that seems so distant, like outside of the hospital, because that's where it's contained. Um, it was just like a a more face-to-face confrontation with the immediate danger of the virus and the immediate reality of what's going on behind, not in a bad way, but behind closed doors in the hospitals. Like, there are a lot of people who are literally putting their lives on the line. And, um, like, I I had never really seen that um, firsthand before. So, you know, then I got to get in my car and drive back home and they stayed and worked all of Easter and um, had to wear masks and face shields and gloves and gowns and uh, it was intense. And so I think just seeing it, like being able to to lay, lay eyes on this beast in a more real way um, definitely brought it closer to home than just looking at it in theory, you know. You know, what makes me think of a little bit is uh, <clears throat> when Sandy Hook happened was around Christmas time, I think, the, that school shooting mm-hmm. in New England. And yeah. there was, uh, you know, they were asking some of these parents, like, how are you going to be able to celebrate Christmas after losing a child and everything? And I heard some some priests basically say, like, for us to really understand the meaning of Christmas is it's not that it's like this magical time when everything is perfect. And it's kind of why the holidays are so hard for a lot of people is because they feel this pressure to make themselves feel the magic and that everything is a okay. Um, and if there's any time of year that the family's all together and you're not fighting, it's Christmas, but it's not like you have a different family on Christmas than you did Hmm. in March. You know, um, I think something similar with Easter, you know, like it's sort of made some sense in Lent, that, uh, you know, you feel the pain and the renunciation and the desert kind of feel, but then, you know, you're saying about like feeling a little more Eastery, being with your family and the dog and everything and being a little bit more joyful, but then having to go straight into the hospital, into the jaws of death. Um, I, I guess I would say something similar, like that's kind of what Easter, why we celebrate it year in and year out. Um, because it's this ongoing mystery of death and resurrection and um, our hearts should resonate with joy at the good news and the fact, the objective fact that Jesus is alive and that life is stronger than death and God will provide and our bodies will be raised and everything. Um, But our hearts are not perfectly attuned to that reality. We are still subject to, to sin and death until we're, you know, totally conformed to Christ crucified and, and risen. Um, and that goes for not just us individually, but all of us together as the body of Christ. So, I don't know. I guess it makes sense. Like, you know, it's not like we canceled Easter. 
um, if anything, we feel it more poignantly now, um, what it really means or what deaths, you know, it's like, it's not just about Easter baskets and feeling good and having quote hope and that sort of like therapeutic deism of like, yeah, this is all going to work out. And what that looks like is us having a nice day and it being a sunny one. Um, what this really looks like is the, is the relentless love of God going into the depths of our alienation from him. Um, and until we really feel the need of it, uh, can we really receive the gift, you know? Anyway, it's a little theological reflection on it, but it's still hard. I mean, I really feel for people and like not be able to go to church on Sunday on a, on Easter of all days. That's hard. Just feels like any other day, I guess. Well, Carrie, tell us a funny story. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know if I have any funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. How is uh, yeah, how's family life in this time for you for you guys? It's kind of. It's a little bizarre. So our daughter was born in, at the end of January. Wow. Um, okay. So it was kind of like, especially as we started all of the social distancing, like I was still technically on maternity leave. So my life didn't change very much um, because at that point, you know, I was at home with the baby every day anyways. Um, and we weren't really, I mean, we would go out occasionally, um, but mostly, you know, going out to mass on Sundays and Otherwise, pretty much staying home, save for a few other things. And so at first it was like, well, my life hasn't really changed. It's just that everyone else is at home now too. Um, but it's it's interesting because I am really grateful to have extra time at home with the baby. And because I would be, if we were all sort of in normal life, I would be back at work now. Um, but it is a challenge to try to work full time and also take care of a baby full time. <laughs> um but it's good. Um, I'm, I think one of the sort of silver linings of all of this is that we've all learned to be better at communicating with our family, you know, outside the three of us just in our house here, um, being diligent about like calling our parents and siblings and friends. And, you know, we've had some like Zoom happy hours or um, Zoom double dates with friends, um, especially ones that live out of town. And we're like, why, why did it take a pandemic for us to come up with this idea of fixing dinner at our houses and sitting down and having dinner over FaceTime together. Um, when we could have been doing this all along instead of just being sad that we live States away. Um, and so I think there have been some really sort of sweet moments that have come out of all of this, um, in that regard. Um, and it is really nice to be able to have some more time at home. Um, but I think not without its challenges, but. Have you enjoyed being a mom, Carrie? I have. Um, it's hard, but worth it. Um, and totally unlike anything else. Um, I think really just like a, um, in a new way, sort of like seeing God in everyday things, because it's just really amazing to be like, to be, um, sort of a part of God's creative plan and to be entrusted with a tiny human to raise. Um, it's pretty crazy. And I think especially for me with my like background to, um, to think uh, sort of meditate on how God like designed all of this to be um, like for our bodies to be able to like grow and sustain a human and then feed it. And like for us to just sort of like instinctively know how to take care of a child and all that is just really um, crazy and humbling. Um, and it, it is like a huge blessing, I think to have a new baby right now um, because of course she has no idea that you know, anything that's going on in the world. And so as she grows and develops and learns to smile and laugh and play and all those sorts of things, um, is a really joyful, um, and like pure reminder of all the good things in life, um, that aren't at all tarnished by hmm. the virus in the world. Yeah, that's cool. No, thank you for, for sharing. I just finished, um, the, I think we talked about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but I just reread the book, A Severe Mercy. And one of the um, points that I just, yeah, found fascinating as he was more processing his grief towards the end of the book, 
but he was just in the thick of the grief of losing his wife and this great tragedy. And he couldn't reconcile that steak still tasted good. Um, I just thought that was like a, a fascinating um, point in, in like everything that was going on is that those two things were like, yeah, just like incongruent to him. Um, but yet he was still experiencing like reality and how he processed it was um, just really, really cool in in the book so it's not the same thing but and not to hopefully add any like fluff to the conversation we've um we've had but it really is it's cool and i've talked to my siblings as as well and kind of amidst all the 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 craziness and um but no i I guess what i'm trying to say is like just thank you for your your faithfulness as 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 well there to hear you to hear you talk about like yeah, like being a new mom in the midst of all this is is very, very cool to hear. I think I've been trying to meditate on that a little bit this week that it is hard in some ways for it to be Easter now. And, you know, in some ways it sort of felt like we should wake up Easter morning and this should all be just a big joke or something. Um, but to remember that we are an Easter people and that a lot of the world has forgotten that and that we... Um, as Catholics need to try to be a source of joy and hope and um, sort of like sharing the gospel, even though um, it sort of still feels like Lent in some ways. Relax. Well, thanks so much, Carrie, for coming on and illuminating this podcast with something that's actually not that poorly researched and <laughs> selected. I don't know. I still feel unqualified to be a coronavirus expert, but I guess... Um, well, then that fits our brand. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I'm honored to be a guest. Yeah. A okay. Guest. <laughs> Carrie, this is to go back. This is just for um, maybe my own entertainment. Why do you listen to the podcast? Um, I mean, I guess I started listening because we knew that you you were on it, so we just started. We were like, "Well, we'll check out Father Mike's podcast." Um. But I sort of, I think I wish that I had more opportunities to um, be friends with or just like be with the clergy in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And um, and I think that it's really humanizing just to hear you guys sort of chat and refreshing to hear, you know, what you think about different things or what you guys have been up to. Because um, I think as I, I've told other people about the podcast and one of the things I say is it sort of feels like you're just sitting in the living room with you guys um, and instead of obviously talking with you as I have the pleasure of doing today, um, just like sort of listening to you guys talk to each other, um, which is really fun, I think, to hear what you guys are thinking and up to um, in a less formal way than, you know, your homilies on Sundays or whatever it may be. Um, because I think that's really important. I think it makes me sad that our culture is so set up to um, you know, just sort of funnel people towards marriage as a vocation. Um, and maybe, and I don't really, I don't know. I can't speculate too much as to why any of that is, especially cause I grew up, um, Protestant. And so having a vocation to marriage and a vocation to, um, ministry were not mutually exclusive. Um, and my brother-in-law actually is a Methodist pastor. Um, but I think that having, things like podcasts like this where we get to see priests and religious um, just sort of live regular lives like us and, you know, talk to their friends and do whatever it is, is really good. Um, and sort of maybe bring some extra fullness to the body of Christ that we might miss otherwise. That's cool. That's cool. It's good to well, hear. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. It's going to be strange to hear my own voice whenever this gets posted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you'll be muted. Sorry. <laughs> Did we not say that? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to voice like over summaries of what you Father said. I Father Mike that I have podcast equipment that I could get my hands on because I help some friends produce a podcast about No, no, you can't stuff. plug anything, Carrie. Sorry. Oh, I won't say the name of it. <laughs> um, but I'm never on that podcast. I just help behind the scenes stuff. Oh. You never actually hear my voice. Um, so this is different. <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding. You can plug it if you want. <laughs> I have a feeling that our listenership is not very intersecting, but it, it's called Behind the Microscope. And we just sort of talk about, um, as they say, the people and the process of science rather than the actual science itself. Um, mm. 
which oh. is pretty fun. Wow, that's very much like what we're doing <laughs> behind the <laughs> chasuble, <laughs> <laughs> behind the collar. <laughs> nice. All right. Cool. Good talk, thank you very guys. much, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. God bless yeah, you and uh, praying for your family and for thank you. Thank you. Same to you guys. All right. See you, Gary. See ya. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.